This past summer, Carolyn and I celebrated our 27th anniversary, and it's remarkable to me the things that we've learned over that more than quarter of a century. Chief among the things that we've learned is how really different we are. We, we knew we were different when we first met because most people, when they meet, they go, you know, opposites attract, and you and I are different, and I think that's why we fit. But as the years have rolled by, Carolyn and I are very different. I mean, <laughs> remarkably, you take those, those temperament tests, and we are like the exact opposite numbers and letters from each other. And, and it should have been evident from the beginning. Carolyn, even as she was growing up, was like, you know, I may get married. I may not get married. I don't know that I really need to get married. Or I can't imagine that I'd find anybody I'd want to live with. Consistent with my personality, I manufactured an idol out of marriage as quickly as I could fashion it. I mean, I was a teenager going, I can't live without a marriage partner. I mean, I, as crazy as that sounds and as needy and pathetic as that may sound, because I'm a guy and you're like, dude, isn't that supposed to be what women do? Yeah, I know. I had five sisters and brides magazines were all over the house. But I'm saying, <laughs> I, I was made by God to want relationship. I mean, I'm just an... I'm just an extrovert extraordinaire. My wife is an introvert. And so I could not imagine not being married. Um, so important was marriage to me. So idolatrous was the pursuit that by the time I got to college and I was involved in a Christian group, it was hard for me to get a date because most girls could sense that I was kind of sort of looking for a spouse. And you've met those people before, right? You know, hi, how are you? Want to get married? It's kind of an awkward conversation. <laughs> You know, I also, by the time I got out of college, I mean, I was ruining first dates because I was like not even allowing the date to like develop naturally. I'm like assessing like within the first 20 minutes, nah, this isn't going to happen. You know, and it was really sad. I remember being in college and they'd have these moments in our college group where seniors would get up and, or people would get up and they'd share testimonies and there'd always be a couple who was older and They'd stand up and they'd cry, and we're getting married, and they'd show the ring, and I'd be the bitter guy in the back going, oh, why not me? You know, and I know, it's sad. Nobody's sadder about me than me. But, uh, but I really did think that I couldn't live without the concept of marriage, without being married. And... Uh, I've discovered, as anyone who has been married as long as I have been married, is that marriage is not a 50-year trip to paradise on earth. It is a 50-year commitment to loving somebody that isn't often extremely lovable. Uh, we have great relationship, Carolyn and I, but we've also seen each other at our worst and had to love each other at our worst, and we signed up for this whole experience by saying in front of God and family, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. But when we started having to really live that out, we were like, wow, we said it, didn't we? And marriage is challenging. It's terrific. There are tremendous benefits to it. But it is just one of a variety of ways to go through life and all of those ways are means of growing in Christ. We continue our series, Fault Lines, Division in the Corinthian Church, with an eye on marriage. 
we've been studying all these places in the Corinthian church where we could learn from them because uh, they had things that were causing division in their church. A reporter from their church, a, a woman by the name of Chloe, had communicated to the Apostle Paul, there's some serious divisions here. So Paul actually picked up his pen and started writing. But previous to writing, he'd actually been contacted by the Corinthians about some questions regarding marriage. Now, you may ask, how can unbiblical and unhealthy marriages negatively affect a church, its people, and its mission? And I would say the obvious answer in our day would be Google pastor scandal and see the devastation that can take place in a church when a marriage goes off the rails, when a pastor decides to have a fling with his secretary, or when something just terrible goes on it always causes great chaos. I had a seminary professor who, not because of any tryst sexually, but instead because he was just exhausted with the marriage, left his spouse, and it created a bit of a scandal in our seminary community. Everybody who's been married can understand the temptation to flee the difficulties of marriage. At least you can empathize with the thought processes. But when you look at the way marriages come apart, if you're in a close-knit community, it obviously could have a bit of a negative effect. Clearly, in Corinth, there was a problem. We'll get to more of reflecting back on chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians in a bit. But the, the questions that they sent to Paul indicated that they were even aware that they needed some answers, and they needed them pretty darn quick. So I begin with just the first verse of chapter 7 again, to show you what I mean, Paul says, now, for the matters you wrote about. And then he quotes one of them. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, you may ask, how can Paul say it is good not to have sexual relations when we've studied even in the past weeks that God created marriage and sex and at the conclusion of all of it, he said it is good. Well, to understand what's happening in any particular verse of Scripture, you have to actually know what was going on in the culture, in the context, and exactly what was trying to be addressed. This is called hermeneutics, or the science of biblical interpretation. And in today's passage, we're actually going to do a little bit of investigation about what that means, and so hopefully you'll take away some practicals that could help you in your personal study of Scripture but we study Scripture not randomly trying to hear a mystical voice tell us what a specific passage means. In other words, we don't read this verse and go, Oh God, what does it mean for, quote, It is not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. We actually look and say, Okay, why is it in quotes? And who's he talking to? And what's the problem they're addressing? See, otherwise you can end up in some really, really funky places. And part of our dissection of the chapter today will give us some insight on how to interpret the Bible. Now, I'm going to bury the lead here by telling you right up front, here are the four points, overarchingly, directives that Paul will give that most people take away from 1 Corinthians 7. All right, we've seen the Corinthian sexual immorality displayed in chapter 6, so it makes sense how it would have bled over into marriages and how marriages are supposed to work. Paul says, one, Christian marriage is only proper, its only proper context is the only proper context for sexual activity. Christian marriage is the only place it can take place. 
Christian marriage requires concentrated effort to not lose zeal for sexual intimacy. Paul also says, if you separate from your spouse for an unbiblical reason, you must remain single. Paul goes on to say, if you're married to an unbeliever, you have a unique opportunity to lead them to Jesus. Paul speaks in answer to their questions about marriage, brought on by the response of some in their culture to the rampant you know, adultery or promiscuity that was going on. Some of the people in their church were developing a form of asceticism, kind of a denial. So even married couples were saying, it's good for us not to have sex. So in marriages, they were saying, quote, it is good for a man not to have sex with a woman. Paul was going to say, well, listen, I'm not going to say that abstinence is a mean to spiritual growth, but I am going to concur that being married does cut into one's time an opportunity to serve the Lord. Paul's responses are going to often be about how much time is left for mission as opposed to facing up to some of the challenges that you might have to deal with in the context of a marriage. Paul would say, and I think all of us can recognize that scripturally, we have a series of priorities. Priority one is just to know and glorify and enjoy Jesus. And priority two would be the, the notion of family. You know, if you're married, you have a commitment to meet the needs. You have vowed the second most important commitment you make in your life is to say to somebody, I'm going to demonstrate the covenant love of God to you as long as we both will live. And then you have sometimes children result from that experience. Then you get to, if you're caring for children, you have vocational responsibilities that would be required to feed them and clothe them and house them. Then you get around to, like, missional work. You know, what can I do on the side? Or what, how much time and energy and effort can I put into being involved in in God's church or all those other things in life. And simply what Paul is saying is, you know, if you're not married, you can just scratch out two, three, and four and get right to Christian mission. So this is what Paul's wanting, and one of the things he's going to advocate, Paul is going to say four things in this passage. And he's going to say them in different ways, so I want to point that out real quickly. And the first of these would be to say, that he wants marriage to be protected. Paul's, the first thing is Paul's charge for the protection of marriage. He's going to answer the questions that the Corinthians have about marriage. What is biblical marriage? What is unbiblical marriage? And the first thing he's going to say is this in verses 2 and 3. Since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Here again is the condemnation of sexual immorality, which we've studied previously in this series. The word translated for sexual immorality is porneus, and it means all sorts of lawless lusts. Obviously, it's where we get our word pornography from. And it is no small issue in our day that addiction to pornography is keeping husbands and wives from fulfilling their marital responsibilities to each other. And Jesus made it clear that the use of your sexual energy towards anything other than your spouse is the equivalent of committing adultery. We talk about duty. Let's make sure we understand this in its proper perspective, too. 
uh, no spouse is allowed to say, hey, I'm in the bedroom waiting. It's your duty to come in here. This is, the duty is put on my responsibility to pursue my spouse, not to demand my spouse do what I would want them to do. Marital service is, I'm going to love you and serve you as Christ loved the church. I'm going to serve and care for you. How you respond to that is not really my business. It's between you and the Lord. When I say there is a marital duty, the marital duty is for me to pursue my spouse and, and, and not to demand anything. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let's have a quick clarification. Jesus is not advocating the removal of body parts. What he is saying, though, is that there are some things that are present in our lives that so endanger our marriage or create circumstances that rob us of the energy to pursue our spouse with the love and the lovemaking that Scripture requires, my duty to my wife, that we'd be better off eliminating those things than putting our life in danger. Not to put too fine a point on it, but I think many of us men could live without the internet in our house. Uh, I've, talked to, I've talked to many a man over the last two decades of pastoral ministry, and if they could have eliminated the opportunity for them to surf the internet after 10 o'clock at night, it would have made their life a whole lot easier. Better to live without Netflix than to put your marriage in danger. It's a consideration that some have to make. If you don't have self-control, Paul says you need to protect your marriage. He charges you that you should have relationships with each other, that your focus, your energy, your sexual energy should be for your spouse. The second thing Paul will do here in this section of 1 Corinthians 7 is make a declaration on the nature of marriage, which is important for us to see too if we're really going to grasp what it is we're getting involved with. Verses 4 through 6 say a couple different things. Verse 4 says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife. And this is a really countercultural notion, but scripturally, say, scripturally, once you're married, you are not your own. You mutually belong to one another. The scriptures say you and your spouse are one flesh. Before God, you vowed to demonstrate his covenant love to each other as long as you both will live. And to that end, in spite of what the culture may be whispering in your ears, your body doesn't belong to you any more than your spouse's body belongs to them. You are mutually committed to each other. You are God's agent to bring joy and love into the life of your spouse. And how well you do that is how well you serve the Lord. This spiritual reality was already introduced to us in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians when Paul said, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? 
whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We are Jesus' servants. And as I said before, marriage is about service. You're signing up for a lifetime contract of serving and demonstrating the beautiful attributes of Christ to your beloved. That is marriage. Marriage is not primarily about you. It is about God and his majesty seen in covenant love and unity. Then it's about God's practical transmission of love to your spouse through you. And then finally, it's about life's practical aspects, including their meeting your needs. But keep this in mind. Your focus, your energy, my focus, my energy is on my business. My business is to to love my spouse with all of my heart. As Christ loved the church, it's not to make her love me well. That's between her and the Lord. Anytime I get involved in that business, I can tell you what 27 years of marriages has taught me. That is not a place for me to tinker. Jesus and the Holy Spirit will work in my wife to bring her to a place of being more of what God would want her to be for my life. My job is to focus on me and say, Lord, how can I be a better servant to my spouse? See, if you start looking at marriage as the only thing that will make you happy, you get it twisted around what marriage is really all about. It's not designed to make you happy. It's designed to show your spouse love and the love of Christ. Now, her or his response should be equivalent. You're mutually submitting to what is a a common mission to make Christ known in each other's lives. This is the nature of marriage. This is Paul's declaration. His third thing, his third statement in this section of Scripture is really a, a suggestion. And I use that word not accidentally. Paul, and this will give us a little insight into hermeneutics. Paul explains in verses 5 and 6, Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this is a concession, not as a command. See, Paul had made two admonitions for marital improvement. We just previously saw the principle about the nature of marriage. And now, here's a personal caveat that is a suggestion for how you could improve your marriage. And Paul says as much. This is a concession, not a command. What he's saying, in part, is a response to the asceticists. It's a tough word to say. That we're saying, you know what, we're not going to have any sexual relationship within our marriage. Paul's saying that's dangerous because you were made for that. And uh, if you deny yourself that, there's a really good chance you're going to end up in immorality pursuing it with somebody else. He's saying, I understand that there could be a personal benefit to denying, each, to denying by mutual consent, denying each other sexually so that you could fill that space with prayer and the pursuit of God. But if you don't fill that space with prayer and the pursuit of God, then it's really foolish to just deny yourself that. And then he even goes so further to say, and it's not even just for the purpose of seeking the Lord. This can only be for a time. We're broken human beings. We lack natural self-control. Our sexual urges and desires will 
overrun our lives. So we cannot be foolish enough to think that we could just completely deny ourselves and not end up in danger. And Paul's saying, so if you're going to do this whole, we're going to get really close to Jesus and we're going to fast from this for a while, here's my suggestion. Only do it for a while and make sure you're filling that time with real earnest prayer and pursuit of God. And then come back together so that you're not going to be tempted. So he, and then he makes it very clear, I say this as a concession, not as a command. See, what Paul is doing is simply cautioning them overarchingly about the realities of temptation in concert with the way the apostle Peter would have cautioned us. In 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Paul makes a charge for the protection of marriage and a declaration about the nature of marriage and a suggestion for improving marriage. And then finally, Paul is going to impart his wisdom on the gift that is marriage. Verses 7 through 9 of 1 Corinthians 7 read, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul says, I say it is good. Now you may ask, is that a command of Scripture? Because Paul said, I say. I don't want to get anybody confused about this point. So let me say, in this context, you can see that the use of I say versus the Lord says is merely a contrast between what is clearly stated in the Old Testament or what was known to be said by Jesus versus what Paul was speaking to in his unique experience. Uh, one more example of that would be in verses 10 through 13 of 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul says this, To the married I give this command, and parenthetically he says, Not I, but the Lord. Then he's going to go on to say something that was clear from the Gospels, which Paul perhaps had a, a copy of that. And you can study more of that in our Sunday night study in the comparative Gospels with Mish Bergson. Um, but it was very clear from the Old Testament, too. Not only Matthew 19, but Genesis. A wife must not separate from her husband. If she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Then... He goes on to say, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. There's a tremendous opportunity for the person who is married to a non-believer. They can live in such a way as to demonstrate grace in the most unbelievably difficult circumstances, it will do more for somebody's soul to see Jesus in you and your patience than it would be in your nitpicking of them. You see, in this passage, the first command was something Jesus said in the gospel and in Genesis. Paul's new directive is a new experience for Greek Christians because, well, before this, there weren't any Greek Christians. There weren't any Christians. So they're making up this, you know, they're figuring out what God wants to do in context by Paul's apostolic authority. This careful use of language is akin to when I quote from an author in one of my sermons, 
I'm careful to use words quote and unquote so that you can tell when J.I. Packer starts and when I begin. It's a means of me being deferential to Dr. Packer and not to confuse anybody or make them think that I'm saying something when it was in fact said to us. For instance, in his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer says, quote, Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it, unquote. See, J.I., now we're back to me. Paul's wisdom on the subject of marriage is this in part. Marriage is a gift, and so is singleness. These aren't specific spiritual gifts as much as they are states of mind that enable us to see God's sovereign purposes in our lives. God's goal, whatever our circumstances may be, is that we would glorify or show His majesty in and through our lives and that we would enjoy Him. Even in the assessment of the Corinthians and their struggle to understand what marriage was supposed to be and what it wasn't supposed to be, Paul's goal was their interaction with God and an experience of fullness in Him. The Bible is not a playbook for life or a bunch of suggestions to help you enjoy life better independent of knowing God. The purpose of life is to know God and please God. The scriptures, if obeyed, will produce fruit that will certainly help you enjoy God and life more. But the end is not getting what we want, getting a marriage that works, or getting a marriage at all. The end is knowing God. The purpose of our life is to glorify God and enjoy Him. Understanding that means that marriage, even a difficult one, can be the means of bringing you and your spouse and even your kids closer to the Lord. And for Paul, wisdom is the ability to see singleness or marriage as a gift from God to bring you closer to Him. As I've said in my struggle in this life, I have often been distracted by life's gifts. I don't know if that's a byproduct of um, my temperament or what Calvin said about all human beings and that we are idle factories. But these gifts from time to time in my life become more important and they become the means of knowing joy. And God is trying to say to me and to us that He is the end. These things that we have are the means of getting to Him. From time to time, we as Christians have adopted the sinful perspective that God is the means to whatever our end is. And Paul's admonition to the Corinthians and to us is that we need to see all of life's gifts as the means to knowing and loving Him, whether married or single or married and trying really hard. All of it means that God is trying to get you to know him better. He desires that you and I would enjoy what it means to really walk with him. And marriage and singleness and all of life is given to us as a means to do that. Let's pray to that end, shall we?